Welcome to Chasing Hermes, the pursuit of Mercury, with your hosts, Sean and Jason. Welcome everybody once again to Chasing Hermes. I'm your host, Sean. And I am Jason. How the heck are you, Sean? It's been ages since we talked. It seems like it has been ages, and of course, um, yeah, we wish that we could do these shows weekly. We wish we could do them daily, I d- unfortunately. Yeah. I, I, um, I, 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 I get up in the morning, you know, not even put on clothes and just do Chasing Hermes all day. Wouldn't that be great? <laughs> Uh, that'd be great as long as we maintain this uh, remote recording. Long distance uh, thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I know we talked about that with our therapist. but uh. <laughs> Yeah, but it's good to be back. Yep. And um, I think that we are moving forward in our great mission of the show, which is to what is our provide mission? a... Our mission, I think, is going to be expanding and unfolding as we ever pursue Hermes, it seems that, uh, at least for the time being, we need to understand who Hermes was and how the tradition has evolved over time. I think, listeners, I think that's it. I think that's it. Yeah. I think, I think our, our, initially, our pursuit of Hermes and our pursuit of Mercury was pretty erratic. And while that was fun, I think both you and I felt that, you know, let's get some structure on this and, and build a, a timeline where later shows can squeeze in and, and, and we can fit in some of the uh, more specific discussions in a, in a grander framework so it doesn't feel like we're jumping back and forth. Exactly. It's, it, I like these historical uh, episodes um, because they're really providing the backdrop that I myself didn't really have. You know, to me, uh, the hermetic experience was based on my own uh, spiritual pursuits, my own uh, theurgy and studies in alchemy and magic. And, you know, to a greater extent, the, the proof of the pudding was in the tasting. Uh, but it's even better to have this historical context to see that, you know, the, the, there's a spirit that's been flowing from the beginning of recorded time. And along the thread of that spirit has always been these conversations um, that seem to hinge around a philosophy that, for our purposes, seems to be best embodied in the hermetic philosophies. I think you're right. And I think what's also interesting for me is that uh, although there is this one unified sort of rosary string of, of <laughs> pearls, if you will, you can sure. also speak of um, many different hermetisms because mm. yes. the, everywhere where this uh, current, this tradition lands and, and, and comes to life, it takes on some of the qualities of its time and its location. And so it's very interesting to, for me at least, to look at each one and see, okay, what were the specifics of how the tradition came to life in this particular time at this particular place Mm -hmm. uh, and through these particular individuals, which I've also felt that I've been able to come to know some of the people who, through whom this current has passed. And we'll meet some more today. And as you pointed out, uh, the, the hermetic sciences, the hermetic philosophy, um, the hermetic theology, they're, they're all expressed by various individuals in multifarious ways, right? But we have to remember what it was that Hermes is said to have taught mankind, what it is said that uh, Thoth of the Egyptians taught mankind. And it goes back to ultimately a pursuit of knowledge, a pursuit of truth 
that elevates man out of his natural state, you know, brings him out of the caves and teaches him things of agriculture, writing, science, magic, religion. And all throughout history, uh, we see these pursuits evolve. So, Jason, last episode, we were discussing the Neoplatonists. And where exactly did we leave off? We left off in the academy, um, which was this institution, this scholarly institution, where the Platonic slash Neoplatonic teachings were being disseminated freely and discussed and, you know, analyzed and reinterpreted um, through several centuries of scholastic endeavors. And Mm -hmm. this was the state of affairs in this sort of breaking time when where paganism was on its decline and Christianity was gaining more and more of a stronghold within the Roman Empire. Um, It had already become the state religion of of the Roman Empire, but it took a while before uh, other religions and other, shall we say, religious philosophies were beginning Mm -hmm. to be pushed out. And it was Emperor Justinian in 529 who dealt the final blow to the Platonic academies and oh yeah he's he he felt this was not shall we say conducive to the unity of the Roman Empire uh, we oh, should be right. teaching one type of of you know philosophy and one type of uh, theology if you will only sure. and uh, and the academy had to uh, close down and many considered this to be the end of antiquity 529 AD this is the end of the antique period oh. at this point paganism within the Greco-Roman world was essentially gone essentially dead and as well as pagan philosophy yeah yeah. And we have to remember that all of the ancient Greek philosophers that influenced greater thought for thousands of years were all pagans. They were, but they did not necessarily see the gods as entities unto themselves, but rather as expressions of something greater. Many did, anyway. Um, and that behind the world of, of the classical gods, you know, Zeus and Mars and, you know, what mm-hmm. have you, I'm mixing pantheons here, but who cares, <laughs> uh, was something unknowable. And, and it was this unknowable deity that the philosophers preferred to talk about in, in more philosophical terms and left the, the, the folk religion to the domain of the allegory. Right, yep. And uh, after this, nothing much happens to hermetism in the West. Mm, the hermetic dark ages. yeah and the Dark Ages for the entire West. Um, some have speculated that the Academy kind of went underground and stayed maybe within the Roman Empire for a while, um, and that there were, shall we say, academic movements. You know, when I say academic, oh. I mean specifically the, the Platonic Academy. Right. Um, uh, outside of the Roman Empire, particularly in what was to become the Ottoman Empire and the Byzantine uh, Empire, and, and uh, i.e. the areas east and northeast of the uh, Roman Empire. Um, Some parts of Turkey, perhaps. Mm -hmm. Um, Baghdad was a big center of of philosophy where they continued to study the Greek philosophies all throughout uh, the Middle Ages. But in the West, nothing. It is so sad to think that there's this vast period where those who truly were driven to pursue truth, you know, to pursue a higher education 
uh, as it were, were really driven underground because, you know, the pursuit of anything that was outside of the realms of established thought was persecuted. Yeah, and it's interesting that there was a a, a free, open culture of pluralism in the East, in the Islamic world at this time, during the, you know, what was to become the golden age of Islam, uh-huh. whereas in the West it was very repressive. Um, and I think, you know, throughout the modern period, we've seen a real kind of reversal of fates here, where mm-hmm. um, now the openness is something that... Uh, I, I guess most people would agree that the West stands for. I mean, I'm speaking from a Western standpoint, so I'm, sure. I'm not entirely unbiased. <laughs> <laughs> and by pluralism, you mean the the harmony of other ideas, the harmony of other faiths, even yes. in light of your own conviction of your own faith. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Now, we right. can't see the world only through uh, the eyes and the voices of the extremists, but I think that's a generalized picture that we have of of our time. So what you're saying is that this period of time, this dark ages, um, in the West at least, uh, pluralism was officially dead. That to pursue a harmony of ideas, a harmony of faiths uh, outside of the state-sanctioned beliefs, uh, you would have been frowned down upon. You would have been you, you would have been <laughs> scoffed at. Yes. Scoffed yeah. or stoned and murdered. Uh, not necessarily, okay. but but perhaps. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, I think so. And what this repression in the West led to was in many ways um, a lack of inquiry into a lot of areas of life, the universe, and the meaning of it all um, that had been the hallmark of Western civilization <laughs> up to this point. Yeah. And, and those questions were simply not asked anymore. I think that was very much the the state of affairs for a very long time. And I don't think that really changed until the Crusades, you know, when the Crusaders went over to the Holy Land and started battling against the uh, Saracens. And uh, a lot of people be- uh, came to understand and appreciate the culture of the Islamic world. And they mm-hmm. came to realize that these uh, people that they believed previously were uh, barbarians and brutes actually had a, a, a much higher culture than they did coming from the West. Right, especially since they had continued many of the pursuits that had begun in the academy. Totally. Uh, rather than shut it down and, and, and close off man to that mode of thought, they expanded upon it. Mathematics, hygiene, uh, physics, well, natural philosophy. Um, alchemy. Alchemy, absolutely. Um, and a whole slew of other things. They had continued to appreciate and, and cultivate in the East. and so While the West was sleeping. Basically, yeah. And, and, and basically battling uh, for territory, I think. Sure. And so... Uh, the Crusades, when the Crusaders came back, um, they brought some of these old texts with them uh, in the sort of 12th century, and that led to uh, one, if not several, little mini renaissances where uh, fragments of texts or were, were, were circulated um, in smaller areas. But of course, everything had to be handwritten, and it didn't get the kind of distribution that it would have needed to spark a large. A movement that would spread across all of Europe, like the Renaissance did, mm-hmm. with the invention of the printing press, of course. 
Yeah, it's so it's odd to think that there's this time that isn't really separated by that much history no. where they had completely just forgot about all of the classical works. Yeah, feudalism and, you know, all that kind of stuff was the thing of the day. Anyway. Hmm. Well, um, you know, imperialistic conquest does take up a lot of your time. Yes, yes. <laughs> Tell me about it. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that's why this show uh, took over a month to produce. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we're expanding our empire throughout the four corners of the world <laughs> <laughs> through the cunning use of flags. Uh, um, anyway, and Facebook is our next domain <laughs> <laughs> through the cunning use of Facebook. Um, yes, uh, I forget where I was now. Um, <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> uh, we're not even not even beginning yet. You know. <laughs> That's all right. 20 minutes into the show. Right? It's, it's a good intro. <laughs> it's a good intro. When you say you have an intro, you really mean it, don't you? <laughs> so what ended up happening during these dark ages was that um, theology started to move away from the natural world. It started to dissociate itself from uh, anything that was material, right? Um mm-hmm. We're not afraid of generalizations here at Ch- Chasing Hermes. So, uh, oh, of course not. No, we'll, I'll just go on a big one here. Um, it's saying that theology during the Dark Ages uh, was very much concerned with the afterlife and not so much concerned of what we can do here now. Mm-hmm. Right? It was very much mm-hmm. about what is it that we need to do and believe and feel uh, in order to secure our place in the kingdom come. And on the other hand, natural philosophy, we can't call it science yet because the scientific method hasn't been invented, but um, natural philosophy, which is the philosophy of nature, uh, everything that we see around us, Mm -hmm. elements and, uh, you know, fluids and liquids and things like that. Gases and billiard balls and apples. Tell me about gases. Uh, (laughs) uh, Billiard balls, yeah. This area of philosophy was making some pretty uh, large advances during this time, um, towards the end of the Dark Ages. But they were really kind of closed off from each other. So there was this great big divide, this big vacuum between the natural philosophy, which could not yet explore and explain the origin of the universe and the purpose of mankind or anything of those things, or any kinds of matters uh, pertaining to that. And on the other hand, the theology, which had kind of lost interest in those areas. So mm-hmm. this area of cosmology and man's place in nature was largely um, unclaimed. It was unclaimed territory. Right, right. So the natural philosophies, they were moving towards defining of the what of nature, but they had yet to express the why. Yeah, and they they didn't have the ultimate cause, and it was still very much a young field. Mm-hmm. And so, enter humanism. And when I say humanism, humanism, what do you think about? Well, when you say humanism, I think about the idea and philosophy that you can adhere to ethics and morality without the need of religion. You think of godless youth and abortions and, yes. and death panels, right? Yes. 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 So do I. Um, it's so human. <laughs> yes. Yes. Very human. I think that's inhumanism. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's inhumanism. I like that. Um, take that, Richard Dawkins. <laughs> but that was not what humanism was about. Um, 
in towards the end of the Middle Ages. Mm. Humanism back then was this crazy out there idea that perhaps it wasn't blasphemous and perhaps it wasn't uh, disobedience to God to inquire about the world around us. That is ridiculous. Yeah, well, you know, it's it's a crazy idea. Um, But, uh, you know, for a long time, people felt that, nope, everything that we need to know about the universe and about ourselves has mm-hmm. already been said it's already it's in the book and right. what more do you need and it, you sure. know that kind of pursuit is folly that's what people felt and humanists said no humans have a need to inquire and that's okay mm-hmm. but they really had to fight for themselves for a while and and it was not uh, it was not without some criticism from uh, the establishment yeah, yeah, that'll happen. Yeah, yeah. But these late 15th century humanists were, they mm-hmm. were neither profane, nor were they theologists, but they were still very much Christian. So mm, okay. they believed that we as humans could interpret our role in the cosmos through rational inquiry, but ultimately proving the uh, validity of Christ. Okay, so they still had ultimately a religious aim, but they were doing so with a new method, a new method of inquiry. With a method of inquiry. Now, we're almost at the Renaissance now. (laughs) (laughs) We're almost at the main topic of the show. (laughs) Excellent. Well, we're covering a thousand years, so it's okay. okay. Um, So the (laughs) East and the West had been divided. What was the Roman Catholic Church had been divided into the Orthodox and the Catholic Church, right? Before that, it was just the Church. But now, and I mean the end of the 15th century, uh, people were living in the aftermath of what was the Great Schism between the East and the West. Mm. But uh, there were attempts made at reconciling the East and the West. I believe you're referring to the Council of Florence? Yes. What was the Council of Florence? Enlighten us. It began as an ecumenical council of bishops that actually took place in Basel, Switzerland. But alas, in 1439, it, it was moved to Florence due to the plague. So uh, but everybody ulti- started dropping dead around them, so they had to pick up and go. Is what you're saying. <laughs> yeah, they had to yeah. pick up and go. Yeah. You know, if, it, if any progress was going to be made in this council um, in the pursuit of reconciling the differences of the East and the West, uh, it was going to have to be done in Florence mm-hmm. where there was... Less death, I suppose. Yeah, and in Florence, people were kind of saying, "Aha! Uh-huh. So, what did God teach us that could have been useful, you know, against the Black Plague? <laughs> Where in the Bible does it say? Oh, by the way, you should all wash your hands." <laughs> I think that's in Deuteronomy, actually. <laughs> all right, so it was moved to Florence. Um, and this was a pretty big production. So uh, you can imagine just having all this congregation of bishops and, and cardinals and what have you there, you know, ecumenically, uh, cultures meeting, really, you know, uh, and, and discussing, you know, really kind of duke it out. How can we reconcile our differences? It attracted a lot of people to Florence. And Florence was becoming this really bustling city um, and in Florence uh, was this young man called uh, Cosimi de' Medici, and he was the first of a dynasty of Medicis. Uh, 
Oh, um, the great Medici. The great the, Medici they were, family. Weren't they uh, banking? They were banking. And yeah, Cosimo de Medici was the first. And he, he started this great Medici bank, which was to become mm. one of the largest banks in, in Europe. Was he a Knight Templar by any chance? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I, uh, oh. Maybe. Um, I like to think of him as um, a J.P. Morgan of his time. Ah, or maybe yes. a Rockefeller of his time. Ah. So not a Templar. <laughs> not a Templar. I, I don't know. That, that Templar thing, I haven't really looked into it, but uh, something tells me it's not all it's made up to be, that whole connection. But we'll have to look into that in another episode. <laughs> Where you will be proven completely wrong. Yes. <laughs> of Templars for 200. So he was maybe the Bill Gates of his time. You know how Bill Gates now, he's built all his fortune. Now he's going into more humanitarian projects. And right, investing in, in the arts and the humanities. He's and healing the sick and raising the dead, you know, yada, yada. <laughs> right. Um, and that's... Right. The, Cosima de Medici famously said, you know, I love earning money and I love spending money, but I think I love spending money more. <laughs> but I didn't blow it all on Prada bags and, uh, you know, expensive suits. But what he did spend it on was the fine arts and he became the patron of many important artists and uh, philosophers and thinkers of the time such as uh, uh, Donatello, Frangelico and you know all the other turtles all the other turtles Yeah, <laughs> he became vaguely involved in this council that was taking place in the city of Florence and he met a man, a very charismatic man who was attending, not necessarily as an official, but just as a kind of hang-around. Mm -hmm. um, his name was uh, Plethon, uh, in, in the sort of vernacular, but his real name was Georgius Gemistus. Um, ah. Yeah. And he was a Byzantine, uh, meaning Eastern, uh, meaning mm -hmm. uh, Neoplatonic philosopher. Um, oh. Yeah, and he was a great orator and some people call him the second Plato. Of course they would call him that because they hadn't really heard of Plotinus and uh, <laughs> they probably hadn't even heard of Plato really before they met him. But right. he was so on fire with Platonism and Neoplatonism, right? Perhaps, you know, he is the link this Plethon guy he's perhaps mm -hmm. the link where the Platonism is reintroduced into the West. Huh, so how did he learn it? Uh, well, uh, presumably from this underground current that we talked about earlier, oh. at least. Yeah. Interesting. Yes. So the underground uh, moles come up from their trenches. Yeah. And smash the establishment. <laughs> <laughs> and Medici says, oh, wow, clearly what we need here in Florence is one of these academies that you keep talking about. You know, right. Clearly, I think the time has come to reinstate the academy. And yeah, so he let's does. Let's educate people. Let's educate people. Let's explore the arts and let's explore these old writings again that were just coming back into life. Hmm. And he felt that through looking at these old Platonic texts, now suddenly they had once again the language and once again the, the constructs to begin to explore the cosmology that humanism had now been grappling with for a while. Hmm. Okay. So he said, okay. Clearly, clearly, what we need is an academy. This is my best <laughs> Italian accent. Okay, I won't bore you with that. Not bad. Uh, you think? Thank you. I've been working on that. <laughs> um, 
and he says, okay, where should we build it? And he says, no, let's not build it. We, I have a villa already. So he took a villa within sort of a bird's eye view from, from his own villa. Mm-hmm. Um, and he put one man in charge of his little academy, which was little more than an informal tea party uh, or wine party, one would assume, if it's hmm. in, in, in Italy. Um, and this man we've met before, he is Ficino. 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 Marcilio Ficino. And Ficino at this time was a young priest. He had been ordained only a few years earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, he was the son of a physician. His dad would have hoped him to become a physician as well. Uh, his dad also worked for the Medici court. Mm-hmm. Um, but Marcilio Ficino, he decided to become a priest, and that's what he did. And he was also really enamored with uh, this excellent platonic orator from the east and Ficino became the center of this new academy uh, which really became the center of all the shall we say intelligentsia of Florence at the time so this this would have been the first academy uh, in over what a thousand years yeah almost yeah but to call it an academy is a bit of a stretch (laughs) I think it was a cult of education yeah, kind of like that. I think I think it was more of a reading club and and a, and a discussion club. Mm, you know? Okay, but it attracted a lot of people, and uh, Ficino fostered some great thinkers of the Renaissance. And it was really in this villa we could say, without too much of a, of a hyperbole, mm-hmm. that the Renaissance really started. Renaissance, as we know, it means rebirth. It's French for rebirth. And that's why it happened in Italy. And that's the way it happened yeah. in Italy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not in France, after all. Yeah, I have to lift my hat to good old Eddie Izzard there. <laughs> so back in the Corpus Hermeticum show, uh, we saw our friend Ficino as being petitioned by Medici to translate that work. Uh, before Medici died, right? So Ficino is that guy. And here he is. Here he is in the dawn of the Renaissance. Correct. So we can say almost that the translation of that work almost marked the rebirth of Hermeticism through the Renaissance. Absolutely. And it's here that we can really talk about Hermeticism for the first time. Um, Ah. We have a thousand years of history bridging or gapping uh, hermetism, which is uh, the sort of original study, the original uninterrupted study of the writings of Hermes, and hermeticism, Mm -hmm. which starts now when it comes back Ah. in. We don't really make that distinction until the 1960s when a German uh, scholar started using those terminologies in order to separate the two movements, uh, just as a sort of uh, nod to the fact that thousand years separate them. <laughs> right. So our so, listeners will forgive us when we mix them up as well. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's only thousand years. Which we've never done. Never. So this is the birth not only of the Renaissance, but also of Hermeticism. Okay. Uh, so Jason, tell me a little bit more about Ficino, right? Because he seems very pivotal to this moment in history and the uh, transmission of uh, Hermetic Uh, wisdom throughout the renaissance so what was he like who's this Ficino guy you know i thought first i thought of him as this uh great scholar you know this great orator um you know maybe bearded and you know tall and and stately (laughs) and uh, but that's probably not what he was like at all Uh, i think 
some accounts have him as being very short, very sick, um, extremely melancholic. I.e., you know, he he suffered from a lot of depressions. He he was born apparently under the uh, auspices of uh, Aquarius and an Aquarius rising, which would make him oh. a good scholar, but would probably leave him prone to some uh, mood swings. Um, mm, and I, yes. he himself felt that it was uh, his unlucky fate as having been born so much under the influence of Saturn. Hmm. Um, yes, he believed in astrology very much. <laughs> and he was a hunchback uh, and probably a very uh, very sad individual. So not exactly what you have in mind when you think of a uh, great Renaissance scholar. No, no, not at all. And, you know, he's far removed from the tall and stately toga-wearing philosophers of old. Mm-hmm. Uh, here is a man who's, who's essentially uh, crippled by his time and, and by lack of medicine and really fighting for, for his survival in a, in a quite difficult time, although he's obviously very, very privileged. You have to remember, Medici was essentially the king there was no king, but he was essentially the, the de facto king of Florence. So he probably right. had a pretty privileged existence, even though hmm. he was sick. Ficino was a very interesting guy. I mean, uh, on the one hand, he was this great compiler and translator of the old works. But on the other hand, he was also a philosopher in his own right. And uh, he did produce some writings, um, but we could assume that most of his influence was given in oral form to uh, his students. Mm, okay. Ficino believed that Hermes, the original Hermes, was a contemporary with Moses. And he was looking for this true philosophy, right? He believed that if we examined all of the philosophies and all of mm-hmm. the religions and all of the natural philosophy, that we would arrive at this grand unified theory of the world and uh, this world and the next. And he oh. called it with different names, you know, the original knowledge, the Prisca Sapientia, uh, or the perennial philosophy, or the pristine theology. I mean, all these were essentially expressions of this this true essential current of the world, if you will, and that if we can understand it, we could uh, understand all of the world and and all of its expressions and all of the cultures everywhere. It's a beautiful notion. You know, we see that a lot throughout um, the the writings of various hermetists and hermeticists and Kabbalists and other mystics and magi. Is, um, this common thread seems to be this drive and to a deeper understanding of something that can unify mankind, can unify them, be it through their sciences, can unify them through their cosmology, but also to unify them in theology as well, which even to this day seems to be the great divider. Yeah. Um, and I think we'll we'll probably come back to this a lot in future episodes. It seems to be the the, the common thread in our, all of our episodes. <laughs> right. I mean, it, it's as though that is the great mission of Hermes, to unify mankind. Mm. Um, not necessarily so that everybody believes the same thing, uh, as we see through these writings of various individuals, that... It's more of this pluralistic idea of respecting thought, respecting belief of others, and trying to find the commonality uh, rather than focusing on the differences, find that which unifies all. 
Yeah, I think tolerance is really a, uh, a, a key word here. If we want to label this type of thinking in any way, we could call it syncretism, which is the idea that all faiths and all understandings have um, common roots and a, a common truth. Right, and, and it, it's interesting because it goes beyond tolerance, although tolerance is probably the beginning of understanding. Yeah. Um, but it actually is the hypothesis that there is a common thread, that there is a unity, uh, a spirit that is breathed forth throughout all religions, all faith, all philosophy, all science, uh, all natural philosophy, uh, that truly unifies, and that if something can differentiate one from the other, then the differences most likely lie in culture and misunderstanding rather than in uh, truth and actuality. The same idea became really uh, an important theme in the 19th century theosophy society uh, Mm -hmm. in England, where uh, one tried to bridge the sort of westernized uh, Christian ideals and and uh, theology, if you will, um, with the Eastern religions and this renewed fascination with uh, the mysticism of India. Ooh, um, we should do a show on we that. We should, someday. yeah, absolutely. Okay, so let's not talk Ooh. about it now. Uh, <laughs> Shh, don't tell them anything. <laughs> <laughs> Suffice to say that uh, syncretism is not unique to the Renaissance humanists, but that it comes again and again throughout history. Back to Ficino. Um, Wasn't Ficino also the same guy that coined the term platonic love? Yeah, he was. Uh, Platonism really was, you know, en vogue uh, at the time. Uh, (laughs) And um, Ficino had this idea. He He really felt that uh, there were different kinds of love, and one of the types of love was this, um, should we say, non-physical love that two people could have, where the object of desire in the other was not so much of that person's body, but rather in the expression of some divine ideal that this person uh, exemplified. Hmm. Um, okay. And uh, in the case of Chino, there's some evidence that he wasn't limiting his platonic love to uh, between man and woman. Right. Uh, right. And it was probably, you know, a pretty open secret that Ficino was a homosexual, um, which at the time was horrible offense. Horrible. Shocking. Shocking. But <laughs> he was never uh, accused publicly or prosecuted for, or persecuted for uh, these mm-hmm, practices. Um <laughs> But uh, it also wasn't a secret. And I think that speaks of how highly he was regarded in the society of the time. And what an immense influence and position this new academy had on the intellectual life in Florence. Hmm. When Ficino wasn't writing uh, secret love letters or orating <laughs> in... Or uh, translating the Corpus Hermeticum. Or translating the Corpus Hermeticum or orating in the uh, academy, mm. he liked to invite some of his closest friends and uh, various spectators into his meditation chamber. Who uh, doesn't? <laughs> I know. <laughs> it's full house in my place, man. Um 
And uh, what he would do there is he would uh, perform different invocations and incantations and uh, really indulge in magia and the magic. Ah, the magia. Yes. Uh, I think in Renaissance magic, particularly this Renaissance, the early Renaissance here in Florence, there's uh, no evidence to suggest that uh, there is that kind of low magic here. That, right. That's not that doesn't fly in these circles. Yeah, this is a, a further expression of the high ceremonial magic that, yeah. for all intents and purposes, were um, as in line as possible with their own theology and religious yeah. practices. But furthermore, also in harmony with this idea of the purification of the soul and the purification of the human being through this applied natural philosophies, which is kind of what they saw magic as being. Philosophy right. applied to yourself and, and your actions and your physical objects around you in order to reach higher states of consciousness, although they probably wouldn't have called it that. They would have called sure. it rising uh, through the seven planes and seven heavens, right? You, As we talked about. Like in the Merkaba tradition. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, that you would essentially climb this Jacob's Ladder up through Mm -hmm. the spheres of the firmament and arrive at the mystical spheres above the firmament, above the domains of the planets, which was the world of change, the world of disharmony, the world of uh, strife, and arrive at uh, more sacred uh, spheres. So it's interesting here that not only in uh, scholastics, but also in magical practice, Ficino represents this bridge between the theurgistic practices of rising in the plains that was practiced by the ancient Greeks, as well as more modern mystical uh, practices of the same. Yeah, and I think it's safe to speculate that uh, Ficino would have been taught by his teacher, Plethon, uh, this Mm -hmm. faraway traveler, um, in these practices, but that he would also have felt a need to express himself and his identity as a Roman Catholic priest. Right. Yep. And I think uh, if we look at these practices of magic under Ficino, I think we could almost see them as um, uh, experiments with liturgy and experiments with um, natural philosophy. And we can see elements of this when we look at what actually went on in his meditation chamber. Um, when Ficino wanted to invoke a certain planet or uh, a, a certain force, if you will, mm-hmm. uh, to contemplate it, to harmonize with it, and to learn from it, he would surround himself with objects pertaining to that, uh, to the nature of that force. So, for example, if he wanted to conjure an expression and experience the nature of the sphere of Venus, you know, perhaps would fill his meditation chamber with with vines and green plants and, and copper and other objects that are said to, to correspond to the nature of Venus. Yeah, right? I think, I think um, you, get, you get the picture here. I think the, the objects would correspond either uh, through the material they were made of or mm-hmm. by their shape, or by their color, or or anything at all. Um, this idea of correspondences is very strong here in in all of the Hermetic tradition. That yeah, objects it's a very Hermetic practice. Yeah, very, that objects correspond to principles, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but not only that. Uh, once surrounded by these uh, objects, he would uh, sit down and and sing. 
probably improvised hymns to the planets and play his uh, little violin probably hmm. improvise as well because the music doesn't survive sadly so we don't really know but he was also one of the first to understand that music uh, has a really profound effect on our shall we say our spiritual senses if you will and he, <laughs> he really believed that music had an effect on the harmony that exists between the body and the soul um, and that in this intersection between the body and the soul was the spirit and the spirit would be aroused by the music and depending on what you played and depending on the hymns that you sang mm -hmm. uh, you would uh, attune yourself to these different spheres that sounds like a very pythagorean notion again expressing this combination of art and magic throughout the renaissance yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I think Pythagoras is also plays a very big role. It's not all Plato, but you're absolutely right. So we spent some time getting to know this Ficino character. He seems to have played a pivotal role in the Renaissance. How else did his influence um, change the period? Well, we could expect a lot of the intellectuals of the time to have visited Ficino in the academy and perhaps also in his... Uh, meditation chamber. <laughs> um, one of those people, uh, most famously, would have been uh, Giovanni Pico della Mirandola. And oh, the Renaissance philosopher. The Renaissance philosopher, yes, yeah, exactly. Uh, he's by many considered to be the absolute most important author of the early Renaissance. Hmm. Um, and he was a direct student of Ficino's and a brilliant humanist. And Pico della Mirandola becomes the first of a lot of things. He becomes <laughs> the first household name of, of the Renaissance at large. But he also becomes the, f the world's first Christian Kabbalists. Whoa. Um, yeah. That's like mixing peanut butter and jelly for the first time. It is delish. <laughs> and Pico believes that, and I quote, nothing proves better the divinity of Christ than the Kabbalah and magic. Ooh, see that that's a very counterintuitive statement. I think especially so too. for the time. Absolutely, but uh, he was very uh, keen on his ideas. I mean, he was only about twenty three, twenty four years old, and he published nine hundred theses. Uh, yeah, that's like <laughs> theses, not feces. Uh, nine hundred uh, theses. Um, on his stance, essentially, on religion and philosophy and uh, science and magic. And he, he wanted to justify the human quest for knowledge, this uh, mm, right yeah. of inquiry within a Neoplatonic and perhaps even more so a, uh, a Pythagorean framework. So we can see Pico as truly the Renaissance apologist for hermetics. Yeah, you can. Uh, not only Hermetism, but Neoplatonism and Platonism and Aristotelianism and the Kabbalah. And I mean, wow. he really was the syncretist. He believed that he had uh, found the sort of core tradition within all of these different traditions. And he laid them all out in these 900 theses called The Oration on the Dignity of Man. And it was essentially <laughs> a humanist manifesto. Um, wow. But within a, 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 shall we say, a a non-secular framework, a non-secular, right. yeah. um, uh, it, it, it really walking the gap between theology 
and uh, natural philosophy. Yeah, yeah. And he, he, he received a lot of flack for this. And I think uh, this work very much was the product of, uh, should we say, uh, the enthusiasm of youth. <laughs> but uh, And he, he later recanted some of it. But, you know, it was a very, very important work of its time. And Pico, uh, furthermore, did not only influence the world of the Christian Kabbalah, but some of his ideas made it back into... The, the Jewish Kabbalah as well, and hmm. um, his ideas and theories were really adopted uh, in the 17th century when Kirchir started working on what was to become the Hermetic Kabbalah that oh. um, most people in the West, outside of the, the Jewish circles, would think of when they think of the Kabbalah. <laughs> the Kabbalah that we all know and love. <laughs> <laughs> and so, I think this renaissance hermetism was it was not theology necessarily but it wasn't really natural philosophy either but rather it was taking the method of natural philosophy i.e. early early science right. uh, and applying it to a domain of cosmology that had been left vacant by the theology of the time mm. and uh, if this sounds familiar uh, yeah it sounds very familiar uh, yeah why well many of our listeners will know the famous quote from the modern occultist Aleister Crowley who said that magic was the aim of religion and the method of science it sounds similar yeah and I think you know perhaps this is what he was talking about uh, this this method of the natural science and applying it to the this cosmology that mm. uh, theology had kind of left behind um, right. I disagree with with, uh, with Alistair Crowley not necessarily on the on the spirit of what he's saying but rather uh, I mean if we really look at it magic isn't theology it no. isn't religion no nor does it seem to be the aim of religion no not at all and uh, but it could be cosmology if if cosmology is the aim of religion, then yes. Um, neither is magic science. It isn't. It is natural no. philosophy because right. uh, I don't know about you, but I haven't been terribly good at applying the scientific method to my magic. I, uh, <laughs> particularly the area of uh, you know repeatability and well, there's re- reproducibility. Far too many lurking variables. Far too many variables in true magic be it high magic or low magic, that could even uh, be approached with the scientific method. Mm, not to mention that the observer and the observed are often case the same. So right. it's a little yes. tricky. Oh, yeah. tricky. So so I would agree. Magic is not the aim of religion. Maybe the aim of mysticism. Yes. And I think that that's where, you know, as apologists ourselves, um, you know, we can find I'm a place... Sorry. <laughs> we can find a place uh, for magic in religion when it comes to the mystical aspects of religion. Yeah. Because it seems that for those who who pursue mystical experiences, magic necessarily follows from, yeah, from yeah. that experience. Well, this has been fun, dude. Yeah, this is great. This has been a very enlightening. Uh, this a has re- been a rebirth. Rebirth, to, yes. <laughs> this has been a rebirth to the Chasing Hermes podcast. Um, a little longer one this time uh, to compensate for the fact that we're a little bit behind our schedule. Yeah. But you know, equinox and you know, world yeah. events and everything that sure, comes in between. Sure. 
Not to mention uh, the the time-consuming imperialistic pursuits of spreading our empire. (laughs) If you wish to become a foot soldier in the revolution of chasing Hermes, come join us on Facebook. (laughs) Uh, Yes, and thanks to all of our listeners who have become our friends on Facebook. It makes us feel as though um, we have friends other than each other. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this platonic love isn't doing it for me anymore, dude. I need to see other people. <laughs> all right, Jason, it has been an excellent show. So thanks to all of you for listening, and we will see you once again on Chasing Hermes. Visit our website at www.chasinghermes.com or send us an email at info at To inquire about the Western mystery tradition, please visit www.western-mysteries.com.